Welcome to the Big Beatles Sortout, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production. I will be assisted in this venture by my brother and resident Beatles expert Paul Abbott, with a deep knowledge of the Beatles and the wider context in which they operated. Each episode we will explore and score five songs from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. The songs will be drawn at random to try and avoid any favourite album or era prejudices, skewing the results as we go along. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the Beatles. Welcome to episode 14 and welcome to I Paul Your Name, Abbott. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Let's start off with a question, Paul. Okay. Today's question comes from Peter Howard with the Twitter handle at Sleepy Silvery. Who asks, is Double Fantasy the only album that has the track listing in the wrong order on the vinyl sleeve? I didn't know it did have the wrong um, order on the vinyl sleeve, which is an interesting thing to go and check out. Paul, are there any other Beatle or Beatle-related covers with notable errors that you know of? Well, it's a funny one to try and do this, because there's obviously misprints on album sleeves are something that drives collectors crazy because if it's a rare misprint yeah then it's something that can bump up the value of things so in in try to come up with an answer for this like also to encompass all of the uh beatles solo stuff would be a bit too difficult really i mean i have got i did check my double fantasy copy which i have in my hands right now mm-hmm. uh an album i haven't listened to enough really i put it on today after digging it out to check but yeah i've got the one with the misprinted listing of songs on the back of this sleeve okay as well so that's pretty common but i thought i'd just mention a couple of other beatlesy sort of uh, you know sleeve oddities yeah anyway because i couldn't possibly do all of them because oh, no. you know there's all sorts of variations and strange things and one here and one there and especially with like overseas editions and things but i think one of the the most significant ones in terms of beatles things is abbey road and you can get a version of Abbey Road where on the actual disc label itself, if yeah. you've got one that's missing off Her Majesty from the track list, right. that's technically a misprint and is quite rare. Okay. Um, but also that one, I think, usually comes with on the back of the actual sleeve itself where the Apple logo is. It's misaligned on these on a certain printing of it. So you've right. got this Apple that's off to the left where it should be you know, in line with the text. And if you've got one with that and the missing... Her Majesty on the actual disc. That's a a misprint that's pretty rare, right? Uh, yeah, I did check my copy of Abbey Road <laughs> today, but uh, no, no oh, joy, no, no, no joy. Oh, okay. And the other thing I was thinking about in terms of like not misprinting but bizarre track listing things is, of course, when they put all the Beatles stuff out on cassette. What they originally did was, you know, they tried to get the sides to be equal length and things like that, you know, and even with the white album, they fitted it onto one cassette which means that although it's not a misprint, those albums are all in the wrong order. So if you first experience a lot of those very first issues of the albums on cassette, you'd end up with a what looks like a, a misprint of the order, but it wasn't. It was actually just the albums were mashed about to make them fit onto equal sides of cassettes. Oh, okay, right. Uh, which I've never had any of those cassettes with that, that problem. When I, when I had the white album on cassette, it was on... I'll tell you what, actually, yeah, we Gary, did have the white album on cassette. We did have a we? white album. You no, know, I'm saying I didn't have it on the original issue. We had it on a later no. issue one, the double tape one, 
where they'd restored it to the correct running order, but it suddenly popped into my head, and you pointed this out to me once in the back of a car journey when we were listening to this. (laughs) Savoy Truffle on the White Album cassette edition that I had was printed as Savoury Truffle on the label. Right. So that's suddenly come into my head, because you went Savoury Truffle, and I went, that's not called Savoury Truffle. You know, it's like doing this podcast, but, you know, years ago. Years ago in the back of a car. In the back of a Ford Orion. Yeah. And... Uh, and then when I looked at it, it was like, oh, no, it does say savoury truffle. So it was a misprint. So there we go. We've identified. Oh, well, we go. Yeah, I'm glad you remember that because I have no recollection of that at all. Yeah, that's, that's strange. That's stuck in my mind. It's just suddenly just popped up there. Yeah, it's not on my notes at all. That. But the only other one I was going to mention, of course, in terms of strange Beatles sleeves things is mm-hmm. the Butcher cover, of course. Oh, yes. yeah. So yeah. the Capital album, Yesterday and Today, which was originally issued, 750,000 copies go out with this Butcher cover photograph which anyone listening to this will know what that is which yeah. is the just but for their for their benefit let's just briefly explain well, it so they got they've got to do some photos for this weird capital u.s compilation of stuff yeah. yesterday and today and they get robert whittaker to take all these weird photographs several of which are them in butcher smocks covered in bits of meat and dismembered dolls and things like that yeah, it's dead babies it's dead babies it's Paul. essentially dead babies yeah. yeah and um that was going to be the cover and it was. And so Capital presses up 750,000 of these things, which are, if you believe some of the Beatles chatter, it's sort of satirical look at, you know, the fame industry or how the Beatles are treated and, you yeah. know, or possibly even a comment on how Capital butchered the albums for their market. But uh, it didn't go down well. And so the Capital's desperately scrambling around to recall all these copies to get out the album with a new cover which is called the trunk cover where they're just it's just a proper it's a cheese shot of them you know stood around a packing case a trunk Mm. it's you know it's it's completely innocuous but the the funny thing of course being they didn't destroy all those original sleeves they actually for several tens of thousands of them just pasted over the cover yeah so you know, there's there's now a massive collector's market for either ones that were originally issued that people have kept, mm. like the original one, or ones that have got the trunk cover pasted on it but hasn't been removed, or ones where the trunk cover has been put on it but then taken off later, you yeah. know, and the value changes according to rarity on them as well. So that's the, the you know the the holy grail of of Beatles weird album covers it's again not a misprinting but a big you know production thing that had to be sorted and yeah created this weird collector's market okay okay so there's some interesting vinyl sleeve cover misprint um related stuff so let's move on to this beetle day paul okay so today is the 7th of december or it will be when you're listening to this and so I scanned through the years, and there's not masses for the 7th of December that you could extract, really. But I thought an interesting one was uh, 1967 okay. is the day that the Apple Boutique opens in London. So the Apple Store, the Apple Shop, mm. the Apple Boutique, as it wasn't officially known, but it's, that's how it's become to be known, opens in London at 94 Baker Street. Now, this is a shop, a clothing shop that's designed and run by this Dutch art collective called The Fool. Right. So the Beatles say, oh, here's a load of money. Can you uh, put a shop in this building that it turns out we own? Because mm. at some point, some financial person said, oh, we better spend some money for you. Uh, we'll, we'll buy up a portfolio of buildings and, you know, stuff that happens in the background when you have a lot of money. Yeah. 
and the Beatles go, oh, we've got this building. They form, they've just formed Apple Corps, um, sort of post Brian Epstein's death. And this is one of the things that they do. They go, oh, we'll start a shop. And they give the fool the opportunity to put their newly designed clothes into the shop. So it opens on the 7th of December, 1967. And it closes on the 31st of July, 1968. Brilliant. Yeah. I like it. So let's get on with the random picks for this week. And first up is Love You Too. Each day just goes so fast. I turn Love you too, Paul. Oh, I love you too, Gary. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, well, I, I'm going to have to try. I mean, uh, thank you, but it's going to be very hard to keep that in without <laughs> it sounding really mushy. <laughs> well, the problem is, you're going to have to leave it in now because I'm going to just going to start now because oh, the problem okay. is that it's love you too, but it's love you T-O, not T-O-O. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, it's love yeah. you too. Love, yeah, it is love you too. Love you too. Love you too, the moon would, and back. Well, it's, it's a, yeah, as in, I would love to make you a cup of tea. Well, I would love you to, you know, like that. Love it, you too. Like, oh, yeah. right, okay. Yeah. Not, not love lo- you Not I love as you well. too. Not I'm reciprocating love for you. Yeah. Yeah. I love so you it's too. A strange, it's a strange title. That's that's what we say from the off there yeah. with that anyway. Look, I, I, don't, I don't noticed it. I've, yeah, that's, that is interesting. And there's no real explanation as to why it's no. that anyway. But it's recorded on April the 11th and 13th of 1966. It comes out on Revolver, August of 1966. And it's obviously, it's like George Harrison's first major Indian instrument thing for the band. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've had a sitar on Norwegian wood on Rubber Soul. But now we're going full, not just Indian instrument, but actually using the the rhythms and the styles and the techniques of Indian music to make a song. Yeah. So it's got limited Beatle involvement outside of, of Harrison, really. And yeah, it's a fascinating thing. Originally called Granny Smith, because George could never come up with names for songs. Right. So. It's... um. So it's a great start um, to the song with the sitar, like you said. I'm guessing it does that intro. The uh, yeah, yeah, the kind of a, the, the what's the word for the chord? The broken chord. The um, a glissando. That's the word I'm looking for. A glissando yeah. on the piano, for instance. You're doing it across all the strings of the sitar. Yeah, like a harp sound. Yeah, rather yeah. than just like an actual chord. Da, 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 da. It's like all the notes in between. Yeah, it's a great start and. and um, it's doing some atmospherics and, and that glissando to get us started before hitting that riff, which brings in the rest of the orchestration, um, of which I can't name, and I think we'll cover that in a bit in production, because I'd be interesting, interested, like you say, it's it's mostly, I imagine, outside players bringing in brought in to play these instruments. Um, well, shall, we, shall I run down the personnel now? Yeah, go on, it? let's do that, because I think it's hard okay, to talk so- about it without it. Yeah, so we've got, obviously, it's George Harrison on vocals and sitar. Okay. And um, a couple of different guitar parts as well, which okay. are quite hard to, de- to detect in a way. Yeah. Uh, the only other Beatles you've got on it, you've got Paul McCartney doing a backing vocal, so yeah. singing along with George at certain points. Uh, nothing significant particularly, but it's sort of very nice in the way it fits in the mix and sort of emerges mm. a little bit. I think it's Ringo on tambourine. 
Right. But there's, there's, there's no John on this at all. Yeah. Now, there's a musician credited on tabla, the Indian drums, right. uh, Anil Bakwat, play is, is credited. But it's believed that there are other musicians on there who aren't known. We don't know who they are. So that's it's a bit disputed because people basically say, oh, George couldn't have played the sitar that well. Yeah, it's pretty proficient. <laughs> it is It is pretty proficient, but I don't know. He was under tuition from Ravi Shankar by that yeah. point, and he was involved with this thing called the Asian Music Circle, which is was a very sort of significant cultural thing in in the UK at the mm. time, sort of promoting this this thing of the Indian instruments and the Indian classical music as well. Yeah. And that's also involved with, with within you, without you later, you know, when yeah. they get to Pepper. Okay. It just, it just sounds like there's a lot of instruments. It might also just be the fact that the sitar is not an instrument that we hear a lot of, and it's a very full sounding instrument. It feels like you're hearing a lot of things playing at once. And maybe it's just because it comes with a built in drone things, doesn't it? So, yeah. So you've got all the sympathetic sounds yeah. from that. And, and also from the, if there is one on there, a tambora. So you only need a couple of instruments of that start of that yeah. type to create that that wash of sound. Yeah, which is really good, and I really like, and especially like the harsh drone note that plays in the kind of chorus section. What is is that the sitar then? You know, when he says, you know, after each line of in the chorus, there's a kind of. I know of what a, you mean. A, no, a that's low... that's an that's a guitar. It's an electric guitar. So that's a oh, distorted electric guitar with probably a volume pedal. But it sounds like nothing else. It's sort it's of it's really hard to pin down. But I've been doing so much close listening to this today to try and figure it out. Yeah. And also, if you listen to the mix of it that's on the Yellow Submarine song track, mm. which is a different mix, it's very clear on there. It's, well, it's more clear on there that yeah. it's a guitar. And But it's a fantastic guitar sound. It's a, it's a brilliant Beatles guitar sound that I've never yeah. really sort of considered before, but... Yeah, I thought it was some kind of unknown Indian instrument to my ears. I thought it was. Well, something... it's got, it does have that sort of quality. If you're just listening yeah. to the mix of the, all the instruments together, it's, it does sound like it might be an interesting bowed instrument or something yeah, like that. Something you wind up almost. It's it's it's, it's kind of grated, a grating sound. Yeah, it's, I know exactly what you mean. A growl, even sorry, a growl kind of. It's a brilliant noise. Uh, yeah, and it's a great bit of George melody and mysticism with it, and the harmony that you said, like you said, that Paul brings in. Just when it comes in, it's it does sit really tonally, really like they they live together. Those the, the, the two vocal parts when they happen, and mm-hmm. um, I, I like the pickup of the pace in the outro after the um, "I'll make love to you" line. Um, I mean, it's a great piece from George um, and whoever it is who's on the record. It's pacey, it's catchy. It doesn't have the traditional rock instruments. Well blend it does obviously we've just said it does but it doesn't have that it's not making a feature of there being like a band also going on in the other ear um so it doesn't hit um home that kind of cultural combination that we've had in like she said and rain and that kind of thing and nor is it yet the epic that is something like within you without you but it's definitely a solid george entry and putting him on that path um i'm giving it 60 for music okie doke um, so onto the production, which we've covered covered a lot about the orchestration of, of it, uh, or the instrumentation, I should say. Um, I mean, I love the sound of it, which of course is the biggest draw of this kind of music, the layers, the textures, the resonances across the frequency ranges, and they're all here, um, especially with that, that, that low guitar sound breaking through. Um, it's impressive that you can hear everything that's going on with such clarity and such place in the kind mm-hmm. of audio picture, isn't it? You know, they... That the, 
it is something we come to hear again with within you without you and his, his later ones where they just lend themselves to this kind of studio recording don't they that's in, these kind of instruments well i think the interesting thing would have been the challenge for the engineers doing this mm. in 1966 so for instance the the one story that they've got is like well the tabla drums which are these played by anil bakwat yeah. is so the tabla's got those very loose skins on them so when you hit them, they create a sort of air pressure current. So if they're putting certain types of microphones near to them, you know, they've got yeah. to be very careful about that they don't damage the mic if it's a ribbon mic, which is a very delicate type of microphone. So mm. there's the stories about working out how to close mic things where normally they'd be sort of more distance mic. So you get this very, like a rock recording technique, but with a, an Indian classical instrument mm. and things like that. So I, I, I bet it was an interesting day at work, oh, yeah. you know, with all these different things. Yeah, good challenge. And what have they done? They've done it. They've done it right. So, um, and and like we said about the the harmony, it, it, the two voices sound almost as one, which is a is a great bit of um, uh, a great achievement as well. I'm going to give it seventy two for production. Mm-hmm. Lyrics. Um, I quite like George's later brand of mysticism and religion that comes across much better in things like Long, 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 and you know, eventually Post Beatles, My Sweet Lord, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, you're still playing with it. And it's still set slightly in opposition to other people. So rather than being kind of transcendent of those things, it's still a bit bound by you don't, you know, I know something you don't know, maybe. Yeah, it, it's, it's I think a, you're right. Yeah. He's making it about other people trying to label him, tie him down, bring him down, rather than concentrating on being above that, you know, or rather not concentrating on that at all. Um, but it's better than something like Blue Jay Way, where he's just singing about something mundane in a kind of myst- mystic fashion um i think from a listener point of view yeah um yeah he's on the path i think at this point but he's not quite there yet and it's also a sort of love song but it does feel i mean a lot of george's stuff has a certain cynicism to it yeah despite the fact that he's clearly on a quest to find himself Mm. that obviously lasts his entire life and yeah, but then he's got the make love all day long, la da la. If I'll make love to you, and it's like, well, that sits against. There's people standing around who'll screw you in the ground. It's, it's like you. It's only 1966. You haven't, you haven't had the worst of it yet, George. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah. And like, love me while you can before I'm a dead old man. Yeah, it is. It's it's an, it's a, it's the old naive word again, isn't it? The old naive word. Old, the old naive. Yeah, you know they're still young, and he's he's on a path, and you know, so you wouldn't need to be on the path if you didn't have to kind of get mm-hmm. get over kind of a yourself. Yeah, he's anyway, working stuff out. Yeah, he's working stuff out. Um, and also lyrics come a bit later for George, I think, don't they? They 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 aren't his strong point at the beginning, but they're not that you know. I say that only compared to the fact that he's in a room with Lennon and McCartney, and neither of them. They they don't both hit it right every time, definitely. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give it 58.5 for lyrics, which gives it 63.5 overall. That's good. I will say, if I can encourage anyone who gets the chance to see any Indian classical music performed, yeah, this whilst this is only you know under three minutes long or whatever it is, 
it still does what a lot of Indian classical music does, isn't it? It has the establishing part at the front. It has its, its bit in the middle where you explore the theme. Mm. And then it has the faster section towards the end and things like that. Okay. And if you actually go and ever see any Indian classical music, you'll find that there are certain... Well, it's very improvisatory, a lot of it. There's, yeah. there's certain structures and patterns to, like, right down to the rhythmic patterns and things like that. And I've, I've been very lucky to see a couple of very, very good Indian classical performances. And it's, it's an absolutely entrancing thing to go and hear you can just it, it's it is exactly i can understand why it would have made such a big impact on people yeah as well because it is if you get the chance to go and see any not that anyone will at the moment but when you when you can again go go and see some listen it's amazing great i, I will i will i will i will do it and, um next it's george again with i me mine I, me, mine, Paul. Ah, yes, the egotistical title of the the song. Yeah. Yeah, Ego being one of the things that you're always supposedly challenging through your self-exploration and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot to say about this song for different reasons. So Hmm. it's mainly recorded on the 3rd of January 1970, which is the last Beatles group session, albeit without John. Right. So you get this brilliant thing, and I think it's on the anthology. There's, they've got this snippet of before one of the takes on that day. You get George going. You all will have read that Dave D is no longer with us, but Mickey Titch and I would like to carry on the good work that's always gone down in Number Two. Mm-hmm. So a little sort of joke about Lennon not being yeah. there, and and a little Dave D dozy beaky Mick and Titch joke. Yeah. But yeah, so that's essentially the last Beatles group session. Then there's an overdub session with the orchestra in mm. April, start of April, 1970, which is the last session to have any Beatle in attendance as a Beatle session. Wow. Until, I suppose, Free as a Bird. And that's yeah. when Ringo goes along to play drums with the orchestra on these Spectre overdubs. Okay. So, because this ends up on Let It Be, which means it's subjected to the Phil Spectre treatment. Mm-hmm. And again... Harrison, McCartney and Starr, no Lennon. This is two George songs in a row we're doing today no with John. no Lennon. Then we've got an orchestra on top of, you know, what the band does as well. And that orchestra, so that um, orchestra part is um, Phil Spector penned and and produced? Well, produced. He didn't, you know, he, he said, I want an orchestra on it. Got someone in to come and do the oh, okay. arrangement. Right. You know. Okay. Oh. Well, I didn't know that. I mean, it's a great song. I I I'm, I really like it. Um, I like. I think it's got a great flow between the waltz time sections, constantly. You know, three four sections, constantly moving between the chords, the strings and bass, kind of sweeping and steep, um, stepping up and down with the haunting vocal. Um, the great riff from the acoustic and electric guitars, joining them here and there, playing off them. Ringo using his toms and cymbals to keep all those different sections distinct and bridged together. Um, is there some? Some nice organ in the kind of rock and roll choruses. Is it Billy Preston? Yeah. No, it's not. It's it's uh, it's Macca. It's Paul McCartney. Oh, he's having so it. Okay. Paul's doing the keyboard instruments in this, the organ and the piano. Yeah, which he does as like sort of boogie woogie trills and things like that, and then all those big sort of swoopy uh, glissandos yeah. again in the organ. 
and yeah, as well, I'm, I'm, he's, he's, he's doing a good job. I thought they might have still had really Preston knocking around. Um, and then by the end, we had that massive orchestra kind of epic, spooky outro song as well. It's, it's great. I'm, I'm really surprised revisiting this one how much I enjoyed it. Um, and I, I, and how much I like the music, all the, all the different parts to it. Um, I'm going to give it 83 for music. Oh blimey! Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, Even though it's actually in six eight, not three four. Yeah, well, six eight three four. It's the waltz time feel still, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's still a waltz either way. Yeah. So pr- production then um, for a scrappy album and route to release, I think this stands out from some of the other Let It Be numbers. Um, it's a shame it doesn't have the spit and polish of Abbey Road, perhaps. But it's not far off, I don't think. And I well, think, go on. Sorry. Like I say, sorry to interrupt, Gary. But like I say, this was recorded in its sort of discrete session, like later than all the get back yeah. stuff. So it's you know it's it's separate from it. It's a weird thing. It, it, it hovers in its own existence yeah. as being this thing recorded in 1970 rather than in the big mass of the get back sessions. That perhaps explains it then. Why you know. Um, because as I say, although it's it's not quite up to Abbey Road standards, it's not far off, and it's got some great choices being made with the instrumentation and the layering and the building of the soundscape, uh, and like the orchestra parts almost sound like a synth at some point. The way they've been produced. Well, then, I will I will say I think of all the stuff that Spectre stuck orchestras on. Yeah, and and he did all the orchestral sessions for all of those ones sort of together at the first and second of April of that year. This is the one that I think it's, it suffers least from having it on. Yeah, and much as I love Long and Winding Road and and stuff, this is the one where it, the orchestra sits within the song rather than on top of it. I feel. Yeah. So and it's got the choir in it as well. So it's it's big, but like I know what you mean about this synth thing. It's almost got like a a, a big pad feel rather than a. Yeah. A complex arrangement or any twiddly bits it's uh... which i was just about to say it's probably because it's just the the kind of chords being played across the range of this the orchestra instruments rather than like a george martin arrangement which would have lots more movement in it and mm. uh, and whatnot um but I, I think it's great um and uh I, i'm going to give it 82.5 of production Oh, blimey. So you've got to remember then it's a split. It's split production credits between George Martin and Phil Spector. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I'll tell you what, actually, we haven't mentioned just before we moved on somewhere between music and production is they captured George's voice really nicely because it's very, just quite a fragile sort of high quality to his voice in this, isn't there? Yeah, he's 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 got a floaty voice when he wants to have. like, And in Long, 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 for example, he... It's almost, you know, it's a bit too quiet, but it kind of comes along with this one. He seems to be, they seem to to lift it a bit, but keep that quality, don't they? Yeah. Oh, uh, the other thing to mention, of course, is yeah. this was originally half the length. It's, oh, right. it's, it's duplicated, it's, it's copied and stuck on the end of itself to become a longer song. Okay. I mean, that's commonplace now, isn't it, you know? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Pro Tools before Pro Tools. Yeah. Okay, um, lyrics then. So... We've had Paul's studio outburst of money woes a couple of weeks ago and you never give me your money. Um, and this is, I mean, it's not really George's woe, but that's what he's talking about. He's talking about money and, arra- not just money, but money and and greed and who gets what and what's going where, isn't it? I mean, that's what this is about, isn't it? It's about people. I mean, is he talking about them really in this, about they're, they're arguing over ownership, money, whatever, and he's just getting fed up of it? Well, sort of, yeah. I think, and I've got open in front of me because I've, I've brought props today, clearly. Mm. I've got um, I, Me, Mine, the George Harrison book. Yeah. 
his autobiography, which is essentially the majority of it is copies of his lyrics and then a little commentary on each of them. Okay. And so I, me, mine, he sort of says, is the ego problem and describes about the sort of the religious aspect of, of the I, the notion of I, yeah. little I, big I, who, who are you? But also how people carry around sort of all this reality stuff, all this mm. stuff that drags you down, all this, you know, ownership and things like that being such an important thing. And whereas he's, he doesn't say it specifically. It's, it's, yeah, it is, it is that is part of it as much as it is a self-examination sort of thing. It's him exploring himself, the idea of ego, you know, it's come off the back of LSD experiences and things like that. So Yeah. I think the I Me Mind section of the song, just that those three words put together uh, say a lot about that, but the rest of it doesn't... I mean, he may be exploring it, it, it musically, but I don't think the rest of the lyrics do that much more for the job, but they, they, they string together all right. Um, the I Me Mind is a, is a neat lyric and, and hook, um, and, they, and the rest of the words kind of rhyme and, and more or less. They're on point with the theme but they're not they're not they're not deeper in any way but um which sometimes is george all over sometimes and he he might be exploring this probably means a lot more meant a lot more to him just to be writing it and saying those words than it then it, it quite literally means off the page but they mm. do a decent enough job so i'm gonna say um 57.5 for lyrics which gives it 74.3 overall Oh, what's that? That's that's the Ruttles klaxon. It's the Ruttles klaxon. We've got one this week, and it's something from the Ruttles 1996 album Archaeology. It's Hey Mister. To appear by your side and physically question your manhood and make you come clean. Hey! Hey Mister! Clearly a tribute to I, Me, Mine, as mm-hmm. well as probably a couple of other little Beatles bits on there as well. But yeah, yeah it's uh, another slightly older Neil song that he's he's put into uh, Ruttle World and, and put out as, as one of the, you know, another one of the brilliant songs on archaeology. It is. There's definitely... Um, I wouldn't have realised it was I, Me, Mine until you came up with the link about it. But yes, when you say it, it goes from the kind of... Um, the six, waltz, eight. Yeah, the waltz six eight, not three four sections into um, that kind of more that strict rock and roll, and actually makes a feature of it. And it is, it is yeah. isn't it? It's following the format of I Me Mind, but there's definitely other things in there too. Definitely with this one. Yeah, I think the thing with archaeology is I, don't, I can't remember if I said this before, but it's it's got some pure ruttlesness, as in like you'd expect from the '70s stuff. But it's also got a lot of sort of mood and, and idea and feeling sort mm. of tribute stuff to the Beatles than, than direct uber ruttling as it were. And, you know, in terms of production on this, it's, yeah, it sounds all crisp and clear because it's a, a modern recording, let's say 1996. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to something slightly more contemporary to the things that they're parodying, but it's, yeah, it's definitely I, me, mine as its main thing. Yeah. It's, it's recorded really well. It's a lovely song. And it's own right as, as, as often they are. 
And, yeah, um, yeah. I wasn't sure when it came from, but then I was looking in my research and I came across, there's a, you can find it on YouTube, there's a documentary thing called Sheridan Morley Meets. And in this one, he meets Neil Innes. It's not after, long after Neil's moved to Suffolk. And it shows Neil in his little studio and he's playing Hey Mister. Oh, right. Slightly different rhythm because he's not doing the 6-8 bit. He's playing mm. it straight in that main bit. But it's, yeah, so it's clearly been around since at least 1983 when that was made. So Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole parallel world, isn't there, of the Ruttles and and, uh, and their, its development too. Oh, well. Yeah, and of course you've got uh, Barry Wom at the end with, I got sodding cramp in me pinky. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so next up, your mother should know. Your mother should know, Paul. Well, it'd be your mum as well, so... Oh, yeah, should, I know. should just say, mother should know. She should, shouldn't she, really? She should, shouldn't she? Yeah. But anyway, let's get into this magical mystery tour album track featured in the film with that yeah. famous sequence with the big Busby Barkley dance staircase thingy bit. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about the film, we're talking about the recording, which was done on August 22nd to 23rd, 1967 at Chapel Recording Studios. And then a couple of dates in September of 1967 as well, where they sort of rebuilt it. It comes out on the Magical Mystery Tour on the in the UK on the 8th of December, 1967. Uh, John's on this one, <laughs> finally. Oh, so he's, he's back, is he? He's back now, yeah. He's, he's not doing masses, but he does turn up. And yeah, it's a McCartney number, and I, f- I find this song mm. quite creepy. <laughs> so I've always found it really creepy. This, and I've mentioned this before. I think about Magical Mystery Tour as being like dark psychedelia. Yeah. Even this, which is like uh, sort of music hall, it's not like when I'm 64. This is like a re- this is like I don't know. <sighs> 1980s Doctor Who does music hall. It's all a bit weird and wrong around the edges. Yeah, it has its strange mixture of Baroque-esque interludes in and out of something that's kind of this pseudo show tune type thing, isn't it? it, it mm. They're not. It, it, it's definitely one of the ones that we put under the bracket of. There's nothing to compare it to. Yeah, um, but. Uh, you know, to get into it a bit, I love the little slides on the bass in the opening verse. You know, he does these little descending yeah. slides. He really makes a little feature of well, them. Well, it opens with one, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Uh, but he only does it in that little opening intro first bit. Um, and the little piano and organ interludes that, that I say go all Baroque, classical-ish. I mean, I'm saying Baroque. It's got... No, I know what you mean. Got it's because they it. they've got a little bit of sort of... And that's what's strange, I think. Counterpoint. I, th- I think that's the creepiness about it, is you go from... A, Something that sounds a bit knees up Mother Brown, so something that sounds a bit Handel. Um, I can imagine that other than the backing vocals and Ringo's steady drums, like the others didn't have much to do with this at all. Like, it's, you know, it's mostly Paul, isn't it, really? Yeah, but- I mean, personnel-wise, I've got uh, McCartney's down for piano, vocals, bass, and I think some tambourine as well. Yeah. You've got John putting on some vocals and organ. Yeah. George doing some guitar and vocals, and then obviously Richie old Richie on his drums. Yeah. So yeah, it's mainly a McCartney, a McCartney thing. Yeah. So 
yeah, it's kind of a. It's funny because it feels like it's got this dance hall show tuny kind of pseudo early twentieth century vibe that it's riffing off, but it isn't really. No, it's, it doesn't. It's just because because of, of the content and the words and the the fact that it's literally talking about something. Um, nostalgic. Nostalgic. That's the word. It kind of almost tricks you into thinking it is, but it isn't. It's it's an interesting one. The harmonies are great. The melody and chords move through the motions with the piano and the bass doing most of the work. Quite precise. Never, let, but it never lets loose or gets going as such. And it, and it had, but it has a wistful melody that's hard to ignore or forget. I should say, you, you know, I'm going to give it 56 for music. So it's not, it's it's, it's an oddity. Um, I like it, but it's it is a strange one. Production-wise, I like the feel of the song, and those interludes are great. And the organ, organ almost sounds like a brass ensemble. Um, but it's just a really well-suited sound to accompany the piano changes in that in those sections. I think the kit on the brushes sound keeps um, keeps it shuffling along and sounds good. It's like a, a brushes on the kit, isn't it? Uh, is it? I can't remember. It's got I, that, I'm not sure. It's got a very swung, soft kit going on. Um, and although the I don't pick up any guitars really much on there. Is it? Did you say there was? It's all it's all in it, somewhere in the mix. Well. In now, well, the interesting thing with the production is, like I say, they go into this place called Chapel Recording Studios to start the recording of it. Yeah. And they do this very basic version. And that's in the end of August or near the end of August in 1967. And then they sort of drop it and they go off to, to Bangor to meet the Maharishi. Right. So this is their first sort of retreat with the Maharishi in the, in the UK before the big full trip later in 68 yeah and of course while they're away in Bangor, brian epstein dies right of course yeah it was during these sessions wasn't it so that was yeah the end of august that happened and so they come back into the studio on on september the 16th and start work on this again and they try a whole new version which i think is on the anthology as well with this weird harmonium and like ringo doing like a military drum thing on it which is very odd Right. And but then eventually they just sort of go back to the basic recordings from Chapel and and, and rebuild it up for, up from there anyway, and so it's I just can't imagine the mood that they'd have yeah. been in doing this. You know, it was it was they started it out in one world and they finish it off in another world. Yeah, with with Epstein missing. You know, I I you know, did they have points where they they looked up to the control room and think, oh, Brian's not there. Yeah. You know, he wasn't in all sessions, but apparently he was in one of the sessions at Chapel Recording Studios, and that was the last one he attended. So right. it's just, yeah, it's a weird, a weird song at a weird time. From a production point of view, it never the song never sounds thin, and from the sound of it, that's because they they worked it up quite a lot, and they had time to come back and go, well, what would work? Let's put that on there. Let's put that on there. So I'm going to give it fifty-seven point five for production. Something people should listen out for, though, if they're listening to the stereo version, mm. as is likely as you're likely to be, yeah. is that um, there's quite a lot of difference. So the song starts where the emphasis of most of the stuff is in the right channel. Yes. Then in the middle section, it's sort of it flips completely in the left yeah. channel, and then at the end, it's in both channels. Yeah, I noticed that. So lyrics. This is another one of Macca's that doesn't do well on close examination. Really. Um. I've never quite understood how the song was a hit before your mother was born, even though she was born a long time ago. Therefore, she should know. But know what? The song? Why would she know the song that it was born, that was released before she was born? It would make more sense if the lyric was, let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit when your mother was a little girl or more likely a teenager, so she would know it because it was contemporaneous to her upbringing. I think 
it doesn't it doesn't actually make sense, does it? Let's well, it doesn't. I understand the sort of what he's aiming for because you think about our relationship with our granddad, our mum's dad. Yeah. And some of the songs that we inherited via our mum before she was born that she would have heard from granddad. You know, and he would have been singing before she was born, and yeah. then he would, she would have, you know. So I, I get the vibe, and and apparently the he wrote this while he was had some relatives staying, so it might have been a bit of that sort of family. Oh, do you remember those songs we used to sing? Type thing in there. Yeah, but I know what you mean. Also, it is sort of a, a time loop impossibility. It's a bit paperback writery in that when you listen, when you read it, and don't you know, and don't just take it as what it is, just a in the music if you take it out of the music and look at it you go what? He, he's the paperback writer but he wants to be a paper what it's, it's a, it doesn't quite make sense but it's, it seems to get away with it and create more of a sense and a feel than anything else I mean I'm just I'm being I'm being picky just just because it, I'm, I'm examining it but um, it's got that pseudo harking back to a golden oldie time like the music that's the thing he, the whole music is a trick to make you think that you know let's dance to a song that was a and this is one of those songs. It's it's almost, but it isn't. It's funny. It's funny the mm-hmm. whole thing. I'm going to give it 54 for lyrics, which gives it 55.8 overall. Which is probably the least performing one on the mystery tour, but you know, um, it's got some stiff competition. So far. So far. Next, all I've got to do. You just gotta call on me, yeah. You just gotta call on me. And when I... All I've got to do, Paul... ...is introduce this so I can talk about it, which you've done, so I will start. Good. Recorded on the 11th of September 1963 in one of the With the Beatles sessions, which comes out in November of 1963. And, I mean, in terms of production and music it's about as simple as they've ever been really it's lennon on vocals and guitar mccartney on bass and vocals george on guitar and vocals ringo on drums it's it's very very simple when you read it or describe it but i think it is an absolutely amazing song i think it's a brilliant example of a different type of john especially in those early days absolutely it's a classic early lennon crooner isn't it um where, where he, which he could do so well. Well, as near to crooning as Lennon ever really got. Yeah, but he, he he could have gone down. You know, at this stage, you could you you could almost imagine if you didn't know what he went on to do, you could almost imagine him if the Beatles had stopped at that point and then he'd gone off and had a solo career with these kind of songs. You could imagine him being this a heart throbby crooner because these songs have that passion in them. He could do them so well. It, it seems to be something that was confined to these early years, though. He doesn't he doesn't go in this direction much after these the these kind of songs but i love this style and feel it's got that 50s teenage angst bebop rock and roll lipstick on your collar graffiti drama del shannon runaway you know that kind of well i think what you try to get to is it's Smokey robinson isn't it it's so it's it's obviously we've talked about you really got a hold on me but this is, you know, this is John saying, oh, I can write a Smokey song and I can try and sing like him as well. And obviously he doesn't have Smokey's voice, but he's he's got a pretty good Lennon voice on on this one. Yeah, his singing is great, as is the backing. Um, you know, flitting between those heartfelt verses and then that outro humming. 
uh, all the way up to his explosive kind of gravelly chorus when he gets going, you know, in the, in the louder sections. It's a great melody with really good rhythm backing from Ringo's minimal drums. Um, and the very strict guitar rhythms, like you said, the instruments aren't doing anything particularly stunning, but they are just delivering the song. Um, not sure what the bass is doing in this. It sounds like he's doing bass chords at times. Oh, it might well be. I'd yeah. Do. Well, if you listen to it, it's quite quite prominent. If you listen in, the... he did he did occasionally do that. You know, it it, it happens it occurs a few times, particularly in the early days, where he, he does like um, like these fifths in the bass. Yeah, it sounds a bit muddy, unfortunately, but that's for production, I think. For the music, I'm going to give it seventy seven point five. Onto the production. Now you might disagree with me here, but I think the production lets this one down a little bit, and Ooh. unfortunately, I think it is the bass. I think. It's. I know what he's trying to do. Well, it's not what he's trying to do. He's doing it, but I don't think it because of it's. It's just the usual setup that they usually do at this point. You know, where they're all on their own instruments do, doing a, a band thing. I think it sounds a bit muddy, um, and it right. And um, and when he does straighten out to a to the normal baseline, it's occasionally a little bit all over the place, or gets lost in the drums or something. I I, I listened a few times because I was thinking, where's where's it gone now? It goes from these chords and then it goes off. It's just uncharacteristically slightly badly balanced bass-wise. It all feels a little distorted in the bottom end. Um, oh, no, I agree with you about that that aspect of it. The yeah. funny thing there is, what I like about the production on this is, and I tell you, there's one thing in this I like more than anything else, and that's the fact that you can hear the squeak of, of Ringo's bass drum pedal. Oh, right. So if you listen carefully, you can actually hear, every time he puts his foot to the floor to move the bass drum pedal forward, Yeah. you can hear that his pedal needed oiling, because on the return the spring return of the pedal, and you can hear it go... Yeah. But then when it kicks in with the heavy drums yeah. and the bass changes to match it and get heavier, it does sound distorted. Yes, I agree. It does sound like something... It's just one of those sessions where maybe they didn't realise that, you know, his gain was up a bit or something or his, his, you know, his, his bass EQ was up or whatever, you know. I don't know. It's, something's not quite right there, but the voices are really decent. And when it all quietens down, it works really well but i think it's think it's the dynamic range that's causing the issue here and there it's not mm. a complete washout but it does suffer a bit as so i'm gonna i'm gonna knock it off a little bit and give it 48 for production yeah anything else in the production well you've said about the squeaky bass pedal we'll leave it with that well no the only other thing i can think of is if in the very towards the end you can actually hear a ghost backing vocal in there as well a ghost a singing sort of, backing vocals a ghost is on it there's an actual what's ghost going, on ooh. it well essentially the ghost is going ooh. all right but yeah, it's clearly something that's being tried just off mic with alongside something John's singing at one point and you can just basically hear ah, this right. ooh alongside it. They're probably just uh, in the background having a go at it, aren't they? Thinking, oh, maybe yeah, well, I think that's yeah. exactly what it is. And yeah. it's it, it's hidden away until you notice it and then it's really obvious. Well, now I want to go back and listen to the squeaky bass pedal and the ghost. I'll do I'll do a ghost and bass pedal mix for... <laughs> the, the Beatles featuring Casper. Um, okay, cool. Um, lyrics then. Uh, this one flirts around the domineering, controlling Lennon lyric zone, you know, with him confidently telling her that all he has to do is pick up the phone and she'll come running or or whisper in her ear and she'll go weak at the knees. But at least in this one, he then flips it around and says he'd do the same. Yeah, I think that's what saves it in terms of that. It's it's both ways. So it's that's nice. That's nice. Um, it's a shame there isn't something more in it to get behind, but it's not the worst of this era and style songs. Um yeah, I'm going to say 42 for lyrics, which gives it 55.8 overall. But um, I do agree that it's a, it's a real great song. And I'll tell you one thing. It, for a long time in my head, this was the first song on With The Beatles because our cousin Jeanette bought me a copy of With The Beatles 
many, 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 many years ago mm. and on LP. But the problem was the first track, which is all I've got to do, uh, not all I've got to do, is um, it won't be long. Is that right? I don't know. Uh, well, whichever, the, yeah, blimey, my mind's gone completely blank. Um, it's scratched. So that would start and stop within about three seconds, and then this right. would be the first one that would play all the way through. Oh. And so that in my mind, this is like the first track. So it's always weird when I put it on, on like digital or CD, and it's... Yeah. It's not, and there's a there's a bonus yeah. track at the beginning that someone snuck on there, which lasts longer than three seconds. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, fifty. I'll just to repeat, fifty five point eight overall. Finally, then we have dig it. And the CIA and the BBC. Dig it, Paul. I can't say. Dig it, dig it. I can't say it any. Without. Well, you sound like you're actually doing the song now. Yeah. Dig it, dig it, Paul. Dig it, dig it, dig it. Yeah. Dig it, dig it, dig it. Well, what can we say about dig it other than it was recorded on? Uh, well, saying when it was recorded is a bit of a funny one. The version on the album "Let It Be." 8th of May 1970, that comes out, is taken from the 26th of January 1969, recorded in the Apple Studios, with a little bit of speech from the 24th of January stuck on it. Right. That's the, can you dig it, bit. Yeah. And it's Lennon on vocals and possibly like a a baritone guitar, like a Fender 6. Macca on a piano, George on guitar, Ringo on drums, and Billy Preston on organ. And it's credited to Lennon, McCartney, Harrison and Starr. Okay. So there's not many in their collection that are credited to all of them. Right. And it's it's just a snippet of a jam session that they played loads of stuff, loads of times. This jam session emerges in loads of these get back sessions. Right. And and despite the fact that this is only a few seconds long, there is so much coverage of this because all of that stuff was filmed and recorded yeah. and has leaked as bootlegs. So while I can't find a single bootleg of Love You Too. Mm. I've got the entire production process of this available at my fingertips on YouTube or whatever. Which is like, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, for what it is, you know. I mean, I imagine they credited it to all of them because it sounds like you couldn't really say anyone wrote it as such. It just yeah. emerged. It comes out of a studio jam. Yeah. I mean, it's not a big one to finish up on then. We've had this before. <laughs> no, this isn't the first episode where we've ended up with one of the, 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 the little ditties at the end. And I, I, we must be running out of little ditties by now. We've done yeah, we've done we're, Majesty, we're, we've done um, this, we're doing this, and then we've done... Um, Maggie May. Maggie May, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a list of things from Lennon. Um, sang over some bashed out jam chords, not particularly well recorded because it probably wasn't intended for you know, a, a neat production job. I mean, it's just a, some filler between songs, really. I'm, I'm coming at it from a, not from a, you know, a Beatles historian point of view. I'm coming at it from a listening point of view. It's a snippet of a mess about session fading in and out. So I'm music that I can't give it much because it's, it's more about how little I give it with these ones, you know, really, because, mm. so I'm going to give it 25. Yeah, 25, I think, for music. Savage. Well, I mean, yeah, but it's just, it's just some, I think it's fair. Um, production. <laughs> I'm not going to say much about this either. I'm going to say 15 for production. If you can say anything else about it, which uh, 
Which no, will... nothing, there's, there's nothing to add other than what I've said. Like they've they tried loads of different versions of this. It, it, they just kept lap, lapsing into this song called "Can You Dig It," which yeah. started out because this isn't like three four. Like this is yeah, a weird waltz. This one. Yeah. There was a version like which just like a three chord jam, which was more like a blues jam, which was you know, dig it in the morning, you know, sort of like that. And there's loads of versions where it's just. There's like one where McCartney's just going digger, 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 dig, and John's John's reading out the names of the songs that they've recorded for the album, right? And then just starts reading out chord names, which I assume means he was just looking at a sheet of paper in front of him and just saying what he saw. Maybe it's one of those ones that if this hadn't been in the last sessions, you know, may have carried over and emerged later down the line. If there'd have been a later down the line, you know. If yeah, were, it seems like they were they they seemed committed to the notion of doing something called dig it, or can you dig it? Um, but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it's, these things just never go anywhere, do they? You know, you've been in bands. I'm sure you've had the equivalent where in the practice room there's something that never gets off the, uh, never gets yeah, onto on, it, never gets in the set, never gets past. You keep coming back to it, but it's like, mm. but you, you know. Anyway, lyrics then. So it gets a little bit more interesting here. I have something to say about it for a start. We have a list of things, which is like a Rolling Stone, the FBI, the CIA, the BBC, BB King, Doris Day, Matt Busby. I mean, I don't know if this was a free association list. I mean, am I right that you used to do some free association to write lyrics or am I messing, mis, um, mixing them up with David Bowie? Well, uh, no, I know what you mean. Uh, no, I mean, this. Is, like I say, all the versions of this are just him coming up with stuff off the top of his head. And a lot of the stuff that they did in the studios during the Get Back sessions were seemingly built out of trying it in the, in the session. Yeah, so he's pretty much just saying it as yeah. he's singing it, as he's thinking it, basically. I mean, they all kind of go together well, and you can kind of figure, you know, they, you get into acronyms, and he's going through some acronyms, and... And then, you know, BBC leads to BB King. Yeah, you can understand that word association. But also, if you wanted to be a smart ass, you could probably find something that links all of those things to the Beatles in some way or or culturally does something. But I don't think that was the intention, so. No. And they all go together more or less quite well until Matt Busby, (laughs) who's just, although I'm sure culturally was, you know, significant around the time just doesn't have the ring of the other things <laughs> you know fbi cia bbc matt busby anyway yeah. um either way it's it's a list that's not clear if it's a bad or good list or just a totally inconsequential list so i'm going to give it 37.5 for lyrics because it's yeah, there are some lyrics which gives 25.8 overall right so we have no changes in the top 10 from this episode or even the top 20 but we do get close so here are this episode's rankings. Dig It goes in at 69, which is second to last, just ahead of Maggie May. Weirdly, Your Mother Should Know and All I've Got to Do go in at joint 42nd for very different reasons. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and Love You Too goes in at 30. And our highest this week, I Me Mine, hits number 22. Right. So, you know, some interesting placements there. We'll do the top 10 just to remind everybody. At number 10, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. At number 9, You Never Give Me Your Money. At number 8, Long Long Long. At number 7, Lovely Rita. At number 6, Nowhere Man. Yesterday is at number 5. The Fool on the Hill is at number 4. 
at number three, Cry Baby Cry, and Lady Madonna is at number two. And at number one, I am the Walrus. So, thanks again, Paul, for your help. That's all right. And um, where would you like people to... Where can people find Paul? They should go, as I've been saying quite a lot, to find the Head Ballet podcast, my novelty song podcast, which will have, when this comes out, should have finished the main bit of season one. So catch up with all of those and, and keep an eye open for some Christmas specials. Good. Yes, we will. Um, and we can say the same for this podcast too. I will just say from our point of view, the best thing anyone can do for us is to share this and make other people aware of it. We don't have any advertising. We don't do any paid version. It's not about that. Um, but it would be nice to have as big a conversation as possible and for people to hear it. So um, find us at big underscore sort and um, come and say hello and uh, share the links around if you could. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.